0: Welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter. This is Shmuel Fischler again, and we are about to return to our conversation with Evan Newman, all about the performing arts. I hope you had a nice little timeout, got a little snack, maybe a bathroom break. I will spare you the whole introduction again and the music interlude. And if you really love the music, you can go back to episode one and listen to that again. But without further ado, let's continue our conversation about performing arts. Hope you enjoy. I want to make a little bit of a switch now, if we can. So you've had lots of experiences and you've been on the performing side, but you've also been on the creating side, right? Yeah, that's
1: right. That's right. On top of my music direction career, I'm also a composer. I write both music and lyrics, mostly music these days, because those are the projects that I've been brought on to, but yes, I am also a writer.
0: So how would you describe, experientially, the difference for you between performing and creating?
1: It's interesting
0: because
1: I I talked about the casting directors thinking about the big picture as opposed to just the one specific role. It was the same as a music director that you're thinking about the big picture of the choral sound, not just one specific role. And it's the same as a writer. Suddenly there's this entire world of possibilities and you have to navigate, which is the best storytelling choice. The hardest thing is that you can write something that you really love. You'll put it on its feet. You'll do a reading of the new script. You go, that song doesn't work. It's a beautiful song and it doesn't work. Gotta cut it. So you, you put the song on its feet. You put it in the context of the script. You put the reading and the song doesn't work and you have to cut it. And some of my favorite songs haven't made it into the current version of these scripts just because they don't work for the storytelling. So you can't get attached. This is horrible, but we call it killing your babies. You have to be willing to kill your baby because if you get too emotionally attached to the work if you start to lift yourself up too much and think oh everything i've written is brilliant you're dead in the water you're not going to be able to make any progress you're not going to be able to create a cohesive show that's the biggest difference right and listen actors on and, and musicians on an original piece and technicians and designers are all part of that larger conversation of my character would do this or this set piece or this lighting choice tells the story in this way but when it comes down to just putting the words on the page. It's an entire world of possibilities and an entire different form of pressure and different form of self-awareness. You have to be you have to be willing to again be vulnerable enough to write a cohesive, emotionally driven story that people can relate to. And you also have to be grounded enough to know that sometimes it just doesn't work
0: and you have to keep pressing forward. That makes so much sense and that actually really resonates with me because People that know me know that when it comes to something creative, it is very easy. I can relate to that. It is very easy to get caught up into, come on, you don't think this is amazing? Seriously? Whether it's an idea or whether it's something, writing some sort of content, whatever, you don't, you, what? I think that's awesome. And as uh, given that some people may respond to that, killing, killing your babies as uh, as offensive to them. I totally get it actually because you have to mentally prepare yourself that you have to be able to sacrifice something that you think is so valuable and so important, you have to be willing to sacrifice it. In essence, it's one of the foundational qualities for teamwork, being a part of any team. So whether it's, I'm not sure we have many high schoolers listening to this, but whether, you never know, whether it's a high schooler who is on a group project, and a lot of high schoolers will loathe being stuck in a group project with someone else, and I end up doing all the work, or it's disproportionate, or I think this, and then I'm not given a voice to give my opinion, whatever it is, being part of a sports team. a part of professional team you're part of a team that has to do something and you have to rely on each other and it it is difficult i'm saying this genuinely it's hard to relinquish what you create when you create something you're attached to it you could create an ugly baby just to use the baby (laughs) metaphor when you create something, this is, this is a little psych- psychology to it, is that when you invest and you create something, your time, your efforts, your blood, sweat, and tears, and you create something, it could look like a monstrosity, but you created it. And that creates a certain investment. This is actually very important because when you're part of a team or you're trying to build something, the more you get people actually to build and be in it, the more they're invested in it, and then the more they're committed to it. But that creates very challenging decisions of relinquishing that and then not being like offended if you have to give up on that or being able to listen to feedback. Like I'm sure you've created something and then there was feedback maybe in a meeting and it's, ooh, ouch.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. And it's about how you take that. Do you take it on the chin or do you fight back? Listen, you can pick your battles. If there's something that you really strongly believe in, fight for it, but you can't fight for everything there has to be compromise. Right. Um, It's funny because you're right. There's that sense of ownership, but there's also that sense of I created this, you're rejecting me. I wrote a script in high school that full disclosure, it's terrible. It's bad. It should never see the light of day again. But I was talking and this was, I think I was still in college at this point. I was talking to a friend who had read it and I was like, yeah, that script was really bad. And she goes, yeah, it was pretty terrible. And immediately it was like, hey, Screw you! <laughs> Even though I knew, yeah, it's bad. It's similar to go back to kids. I can talk whatever crap about my own kid that I want. You better not. You better love my kid.
0: That's right. That's right. It's, it's so it's, interesting. You're right. We can have that awareness that it's not so good, but only I'm allowed to say that. Right? <laughs> only I'm allowed to say that. You can't say that. That's
1: yeah. <laughs> Which is definitely something that, as a creator, you have to get over if you're going to be successful.
0: I have an interesting question for you on the creating side and the musical side, really on all sides. In my line of work, when I'm working with someone and we're trying to pull out maybe in a certain situation, what's going through their head. And sometimes it's really hard to formulate that. So a person might not be aware of what was going through their mind or what they were feeling. Some people might have a an idea, but they don't know how to formulate it into words. They don't have the vocabulary for it. And a long time ago, was taught to me and then I realized through experience is that not everyone thinks in words. People think in images. People think in, in different ways of how they're experiencing the world. So I'm very curious from your end, being that you're involved in creating and you're involved in in music and lyrics. Do you find yourself, do you think, not that you have a soundtrack to your life, <laughs> but do you, only. <laughs> do you think in different forms? Do you think in music? Do you think in... Like what's what, In essence, what I'm asking is what's your lens on experiencing the world?
1: For me, it's words still. I relate to music. I, I use music as a meditative practice. It calms my brain. But as far as the way that I tend to experience the world, it's definitely words first. There might be underscoring, but it's definitely, for me, it's words. I know somebody else who experiences the world in colors, which is fascinating. But yeah, for me, it, 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 it comes down to written and spoken language. Even just in my head, I, I notoriously have conversations in my head. So yeah, that's where it is for me. Uh, it's, it can be, except I fall into that habit of having the other person's end of the conversation for them, which is how I end up shutting myself down a lot. Not pursuing things that I should be pursuing. I'm like, I'm going to say this but then They're going to say that. So what's the point? I'm notorious for that. But my brain is constantly having those conversations.
0: Speaking of brains, do you ever actually shut off the creative part? Are you walking down the street and like, oh yeah, that's, oh, and let me jot that down. That's a great idea for this and this, or I found this, adjust this part in the song or the lyric or whatever it is. Is that constantly going?
1: Yeah, and it'll come out of nowhere. It'll come at 2 a.m. when I'm trying to sleep and I'll be like, wait, that should have been the A minor 7. Now I have to go up, change it in the sheet music. Or I finally know how to EQ that trumpet part. Let me go into the, into the file and fix it. It comes out of nowhere. A lot of my best writing I feel like came when I was in the shower for whatever reason. It's always going. It's all and I think it's the same for a lot of writers and even for artists. My friends who are actors always have some kind of song going through their head or a monologue and they don't even realize that they're doing it. But it's, it's innate. Whether it's because it's just who we are and it, it's our lives, or if it's something that's learned or something that's innate, I, I really couldn't say. I don't know if people who work at a desk, if they're an accountant or an insurance salesman or examiner or or whatever they do, I don't know if it's the same. It might be that there's always those things going through their heads. For me, it's always about music or dialogue or lyrics.
0: Right. Now, can you speak a little bit to the adversity of maybe colloquially, we would refer to as a creator's block?
1: Oh, it's terrible. (laughs) It's, It's terrible. And... The worst part about it is that you don't know the way through it. You just know that it's there. You have to shut off your own internal editor. One of the things that always blocks me is that I'll write something, and if it's a lyric, I'll get three lines in and I'll go, never mind, that's terrible, and I'll walk away. As opposed to just writing the thing and then editing it later, once you have your first draft. Same thing goes for music. I'll be sitting, I'll be working on a song, and go, everything about that chord progression is garbage. And then I'll just have to fight to keep writing and then fix it as opposed to trying to fix it as you go, because then you'll never get anywhere. If you're trying to forge a path and then every three seconds you turn around and you start sweeping up behind you, you're not going to get anywhere. So I I think it's about learning to push forward, which is for lack of a better word, painful sometimes to shut off that voice and keep writing something, even though you are trying to edit it or trying to shut yourself down in the first place, it's painful to just keep pushing forward and finishing the thing first. But I think that's the key to writer's block is turning off that editor.
0: And there are people who are better at it than
1: others. I'm still learning, but it's, it takes effort.
0: Yeah, I definitely can appreciate that in, in my work. I really encourage a lot of basically embracing imperfection and you have to keep on going. It's changing from, I want something to be good enough, which can be really hard to accept (laughs) and keep on going because once you're engaged and once you're doing, and once you're putting something out there, then you can go back and then you could enhance and improve. Sometimes I'll literally just tell people vomit something on the page. It might be a homework assignment, it might be an essay, but if you're trying to get it right the first time, you might paralyze yourself. Do you find that as a creator, as a performer, it doesn't have to be about yourself, is there the trap of perfection? Absolutely, 100%.
1: Which is funny because it's an imperfect medium, but there is that trap of Perfection and competition. I need to be better. I need to write the next show. I need to write the next Hamilton. I need to be the next... For me, it's Rob McClure. I'm obsessed with Rob McClure. He's brilliant. But it's that perfection, yes. And also that constant comparison of you and someone else. It is 100% a trap. It will paralyze you. And it does nobody any good. Because the people that you're comparing yourself to don't care. What does it matter to them? But... What you have to put into the world as an actor, as a musician, as a creator, won't be seen or heard. So you're not doing anybody any favors by paralyzing yourself in that way. I think that's a perfect word for it is paralysis. And even over the course of the last, what is it, eight months now, nine months, where as an artist, I've seemingly had all the time in the world to create. I've gone through periods of not getting anything done because of that paralysis, because of that voice in my head, especially with people churning out so much content now. It's not easy. And it is 100% a trap.
0: It's so ironic because the same thing that drives the perfection really undermines the quality of the product. If I'm trying to do something perfectly, do something right, because I value X the more I try to make it perfect, the more stilted, the more pressured it's going to be. And I'm gonna be tense and uptight and I'm not gonna really allow myself to create. Which is maybe an hypothesis of why the best ideas come in the shower. Because in the shower, or let's be real, sitting on the toilet, there's no pressure of I have to do something now. When we allow our minds to, to wander and to be, And we're not thinking, okay, let's create Hamilton right now. Then our creativity is allowed to flow. We're allowed to be, and we can go off on a whole tangent on just allowing our brains to be. And if we constantly preoccupy our brains, it limits us from our minds to wander. It's very valuable to have our minds wander because then we're able to come up with these with these ideas and this creativity.
1: And one of the things that I find continually interesting is one of one of my shows, Lyra. It's a modern retelling of the original Little Mermaid story, the, the darker version, the, the original Hans Christian Andersen story. The opening of Act Two, I had written this like dark, sort of somber song. Ashley wrote the lyrics, my writing partner, but I had accompanied it with this dark, eerie somber music and she came back and she was like listen it just doesn't work for the opening of act two nor for the characters singing it and i pushed back a little bit Because I felt like it fit where we last left off act one. But I pushed through. I I made the changes that she made to the arrangement. And it's so much better now. And it's created one of my favorite songs in the show. Specifically because one, I listened to her feedback and got the ego out of it. But also turned off the perfectionist mindset. And was able to just push through and be like, this will be what it will be. We'll see if it works and then we'll clean it up. So yeah, you need to find ways to take that pressure off and to turn your mind off. And you're absolutely right.
0: Do you have a preference of creating versus performing or they just have different, they bring different things to the table?
1: They bring different things to the table, though I am naturally more drawn to performing. I like, one, I like the lack of pressure. It's a different kind of pressure. Of course, there's always, especially in my performance, there's a ton of pressure to give the best show every night, the eight shows a week, but it's also for me a very cathartic experience. I love writing, but it's more challenging in a lot of ways. And for me, more intellectual, it's more academic than it is instinctual. And that's not to say that as a writer, I don't put my emotions into it. And it's not to say that as an actor, I don't do the academic work. I don't do the homework. It's just that there's something very, what's the word? Primal, maybe? There's something very primal in just letting yourself access those emotions and tell these stories. So for me, I'm much more drawn to acting, though I do enjoy both. Same thing, I love music directing. I love playing in a pit. It's a very different experience. And there are things about it, because I don't do that as much now. There are things about it that I do miss. Uh, I do miss just hanging out with a bunch of people in a pit, like, taking music together. But at the end of the day, I'm always going to say I'm more driven toward acting and performing than than the other sides.
0: Thank you. And I'm glad you just mentioned that, because... I'm curious if, being that this is your profession, does it change the experience of when you're not wearing the hat of actually being paid to produce and paid to perform and paid to entertain and create, does that then change, we'll call it the casual performing arts, whether it's for yourself, with friends, with family, or is that hat covering at all?
1: It's an interesting thing that I experienced when I made the shift toward music direction. When I made the choice to pursue music directing, I felt like my hobby was suddenly becoming my profession and acting, which was my profession, was suddenly becoming my hobby. Over the course of those years, I came to terms with the fact that both of them are my profession and both of them are my hobby, which I think is a really cool thing. They always talk about how much happier you'll be if you can love what you do for a living. It's not always easy. It's not always financially feasible, but for me, I think it's it's both a professional endeavor and a personal endeavor. Going back to the very beginning of this conversation, I feel like it's who I am. It's just me expressing my truest self, as ethereal as that may sound. I think it's all the same. Over the course of quarantining the stay-at-home and all that, I've been putting out music videos, I've been working on little projects just for myself that... I'm not going to find any way to monetize. I'm not going to, it's just for fun, which has been interesting because it is also what I do for a living. But right now I'm just doing it for fun.
0: That's really good to hear because it's, it's also something that I've wondered about in any profession that has to do with, we'll call it entertainment. So some form of arts, performance, sports. I always wonder, it might be a cliche question of when a passion becomes profession, does it stay a passion or once it becomes a job and there's a certain element of pressure to pay the bills or whatever it is, does it take away from the passion? And it sounds like it, it hasn't. There's challenges, but it hasn't taken away from your passion for doing what you do.
1: I think it goes through phases. It comes and goes. There are days where it just feels like a job. And I think that's gonna be the case for everybody, for every profession, for everything in life. There are days that it's just gonna feel like a job. And then there are days, and this happened to me a lot on American Idiot actually. There are there were days, a lot of days behind the keyboard conducting the show that I would just stop and, I would keep doing my job, but mentally I'd stop and be like, wait, this is what I'm doing for a living. This is so cool. And so I think it it comes and goes. And it's about remembering that when you do have those days, where it's more tedious, where you just want to be in bed or you just want to be at the park or whatever you want to just be doing, that it's just that day, you know, that tomorrow you're going to love it again, or you'll find a new way to access that passion that you once had. I don't think it goes away. I also think there's no shame in reaching a point where you realize it's just not fun anymore. That happened to a number of friends of mine where they were doing it, they had wonderful careers, they really enjoyed their lives, and then they reached a point where are like, this just isn't it anymore. And that's okay, it's okay. I don't know that I'll reach that point. I feel like I already reached that point when I was a kid. So in that way, I, I also find myself lucky that I left and I came back to it, and so I know that this is where I belong.
0: I wonder if there's a little bit of hesitation or shame for people in the industry to share that because I think the layperson might attack them and say, how could you, come on, you're, you get to do this for a living and then you can complain that you're having a hard day and you shouldn't do it. Come on, you get to, you get to perform. It could be for other things too, like sports. Come on, you get to play basketball for a living and you're going to complain. So I wonder if there's a little bit of hesitation to be able to show a little bit of that vulnerability to what you're saying is that today I really don't want to work
1: oh absolutely and I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that the layperson doesn't know what goes into it it's not just from either the two hours three hours that you're on stage it's the hours beforehand the hours after like when I was playing Frankie Valley, one that's such a difficult role to sing I stopped drinking no alcohol for me which meant, which was fine, you don't have to drink to have a good time, but when you're sitting in a room with all your friends and they're drinking, you're like, all right then, I'll have my water. I, and I was drinking a gallon of water a day to stay hydrated. I, for the, I think it, my, my warm-up for the show started two hours before, I would run on the treadmill for like a half hour, then I'd get ready, I'd, I'd make sure that my hair was all the way it needed to be. I'd stretch and then I'd do a vocal warm up. I'd stretch some more and then you do the show. And then after the show, you do your vocal cool down and you stretch again, not to mention all the work that goes into the rehearsal process itself.
0: Can you give a little insight? Because I was hoping to get there actually, of all the other stuff that people don't see that goes into the performing, but also just can you give people some insight into the lifestyle? sometimes i'm sure it's a nomadic lifestyle it could be isolating as much as you have community and camaraderie it could be isolating so give some backdrop to the lifestyle of all that goes into some of these things
1: yeah there are some great things like i said i been fortunate enough to travel for work and that's amazing but you also you miss birthdays you miss anniversaries you miss funerals you miss everything because you can't just like up and leave for everything in theater our jobs are busiest at night especially once the show's open we're busiest at night and then on the weekends you got two show days so when your friends work monday through friday nine to five you never see them. You don't get to be social in the same way. You have to make a lot of personal sacrifices. And that gets hard. That gets really hard. I think that's part of what drains people on it is that they the joy of what they do stops outweighing the sacrifice of everything that you miss. I don't date much because when? (laughs) When would I date? I'm too busy working and it's fun work it's work that I love but I'm working and again there is there's all the prep work that I was talking about and our rehearsal days are usually nine to five ten to six but then you go home and you have to study and you have to get off book for the scenes that you learned or Go over the choreography that you did that day over and over again, so that the next day you can bring it in as though you are ready to perform that night. You're in a way always on the clock, even though it may seem like we have a lot of downtime, a lot of off time. We're always on the clock. And that's not to mention the strenuous life of auditioning before you have a job because you've got your day job, however you're gonna make money so you can pay rent and eat and the things that people need to survive. But then you're also auditioning and when you're not auditioning, you're taking a class to get better at auditioning or you're meeting with your coach to work on a monologue for your next audition. You're kind of always working and it becomes difficult to have a social life. For me, I'm a bit of an introvert anyway it's fine, <laughs> but not so for, for a lot of people. It gets, it's draining emotionally, psychologically, and of course, physically. But I think it's rewarding if it's what you really want. It brings its own rewards.
0: But people should know that it's not all fun and games it's not a walk in the park there's a lot of sacrifices you said it makes it very difficult to either develop a relationship or maintain a relationship so if someone already is in a relationship once they get into it i imagine it could put a real strain on it to maintain that and all the travel travel is great but if you're going from hotel to hotel and it could get draining is there a difference in in the experience from when you were a child to now that you're an adult is there like any innocence lost
1: in some ways, you you mentioned actually a little bit earlier, and I may have jumped over it, the pressure of it being a job, of needing to make money doing this. You don't have that as a kid, or at least I didn't have that as a kid. I, I was just doing it for fun. I think that made auditioning a lot easier too, because it was just, I wanna do this show, hooray. I get more nervous at an audition than I ever have on stage. And I think it's because of that added pressure of it being a job. I think it's because of that added pressure of if I don't do this, I'm either going to have to eat into my savings account, or I'm going to have to start doing data entry again, which I did for four years, and for me was absolutely soul crushing. For other people, maybe not, and it's great, but for me, it made me miserable.
0: When you really make it big, you can say how oh, you know, back in the day when I did data entry, you need to have <laughs> something. You need to have something to to give a good backstory.
1: Oh yeah. Oh yeah, absolutely. That's my backstory. I did a data entry at an educational publishing company and I did data entry at a human resources recruiting firm. Great experiences, worked with great people, but also made me absolutely miserable because I wasn't fulfilled as a human being. I think that added pressure does change the way that I approach it as an adult as opposed to a kid. And the thing that I'm working on is to try to get back to that naivete from when I was a kid doing it. That's something that I'm really working on. The funny thing is, almost always, Jersey Boys is an exception. Almost always, the jobs, the auditions that I do the best at are the ones that I care the least about. And I don't mean that I don't care about the work or that I don't want the job. But Jersey Boys was a dream show for 10 years. And the ones where there's there's none of that pressure, it's just I'm auditioning for a job and I'd love to get it. I do my best work, but there's not that added pressure of, I need this job. Those are the ones that I always do the best in.
0: That's interesting. Was it anticlimactic at all because it was built up so much, Jersey Boys? No, not at all. Not
1: at all. And I'm so glad to say that. It was absolutely wonderful and I can't wait to do it again. I was supposed to be doing it now. I was going to be getting back on the ship, I want to say August, possibly a little bit earlier. We would have been in Alaska, which I love, but now who knows what's going to what's going to happen. Cruises will be back eventually and then we'll see how it all plays out.
0: Yeah, hopefully. Now without being specific, because we don't want to throw anyone under the bus, have you ever taken on a project that you didn't really connect with or you maybe even disagreed with but you took it because you needed to work yeah
1: yeah everybody does and it's about finding your lines i've quit a show once and it's because i so vehemently disagreed with and i won't get into specifics either but i still vehemently disagreed with the message that the show was sending and the image it was creating about a marginalized group of people that i was like i can't I can't be a part of this. That's not what I told them because I was, I think I was still in college and it was for a festival and it would have done nobody any good for me to be this big college kid. Oh, But for me, I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. Everybody has their lines. For me, this show met that line and then crossed it. It's not fun to do that,
0: but it's gotta be scary to do that.
1: Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because opportunities come along so rarely that to walk away from one is really difficult. But to this day, I still think it was the right decision for me. I'm really glad I wasn't a part of that show.
0: Are you able to sleep better at night if you know that you didn't sell out to something that you just really disagreed with?
1: Exactly. And you know, those are extreme circumstances. Sometimes it's just this is a bad show and I don't think it's going to go anywhere, but it's a job. So let's do it. And then you find the thing to love, even in the bad shows that you work on. I have always tried to find something to love about it. And I think the same goes for pretty much everyone I know in the industry is no matter what we work on, we find the thing to love about
0: it. And that's actually a good lesson for people listening to apply, is that not to approach things with an all or nothing. Yes, you can acknowledge that something is uncool, something you don't like, something that is just not to your taste or whatever it is, but consciously looking for something within that, that you do like, that is good. And that sometimes takes a lot of effort to really focus on that. I have another sort of, this is, I guess it's a two part question is is that in, in your world, what's the barometer of success? If there is such a thing, is that a moving target? Can someone ever get there? And within that question, I'm curious how you relate to public adulation, public acceptance. It could be something you feed off in a good way. It could also be something that's toxic and that you depend on it and you feed off of it.
1: I think success is both a moving target and different for everybody. Uh, I had a tech teacher who taught us that we needed to redefine what success is for us, and I'm really glad you brought this up. Because before you really start experiencing how broad the world of the arts, specifically the performing arts, is, you think of it in terms of movies, you think of the big screens, and you think of Broadway, and that's about it. And that kind of narrow definition of success is stifling. Some of my favorite projects were at regional theaters. Some of the best experiences that I had were at regional theaters and the productions were brilliant, but it wasn't, you're not gonna win a Tony because they're not eligible. And it's a small theater at a state, nowhere near Broadway. For me, there are tiers of success. I think I'm successful now because I can make a career for myself in the arts and not have to do anything else. For me, that was my first barometer of success. The next one is to get back to Broadway. And I think it is a moving target. I don't believe in complacency. And and, and then it branches off. It's get to Broadway, but then it's originate a show. Or maybe go do a movie. It branches off either way. Then it becomes, I want to be a part of something that really has something to say. I want to be, I want to send a message. I want to move people deeply. So I think in that way, there are tiers, there are branches to what success means for me. But it's a very individual experience for everybody in this industry. There are some people who are just dead set on, I'm going to be a Broadway star, and that will be success. And that's great. Good for them. Go do it. Make it happen. For me, it's it's a little more, there are more variables than that.
0: How do you manage or how do you experience public acceptance, public praise, public adulation? And it could go either in a positive way or it could go in a negative way
1: me personally, I am not good at taking compliments. Terrible at it. To the extent of if somebody comes up to me and says that performance was amazing, I'll say it's all because of this director or my scene partner is just so wonderful to work with. I don't have to do anything. I, I can never just sit there and be like, thank you. It's so hard for me to just sit there and say, thank you for the compliment. It can be toxic. It can be ego inflating. There's a line that Nick Massey has in, I'll keep talking about Jersey Boys until the day I die. There's a line that Nick Massey has in Jersey Boys where he says, you sell a hundred million records. See yeah, how you handle it. There's all this stuff that we don't think about that comes along with fame. It can easily lend you to an ego trip. But even that, I think, is rooted in self-deprecation, in a lack of self-worth. And so you feed into the adulation from the public because it keeps you from feeling terrible about yourself. I'm just mad, I, and I haven't reached the point where I've got a million people following me on Twitter telling me how amazing I am. I'm nowhere near that. I've got maybe 500 followers on Twitter, but I'm hoping that I never get to the point where I get a big head. As annoying as it may be to other people that I don't take compliments, I'm really glad that I've been given the ability to attribute my success to other people's success.
0: You know, for the people who do feed off the adulation, it's walking a tightrope because as long as you get it, you feel on top of the world. And we've seen this, unfortunately, in the public arena time and time again, if that's what you're banking on and then you don't get it, it really impacts people. I will add also with accepting compliments. And this is a little bit ironic because like we said earlier, in some respects, being a performer, being a creator, there's even a maddening part of the vulnerability putting out there. From my perspective, I think there's actually a certain amount of vulnerability to accept a compliment. It takes a certain amount of vulnerability to say thank you. Just a simple thank you because it's, it's acknowledging something that maybe that we're uncomfortable with. There's maybe some risk in accepting. Maybe I'm setting a certain stand. It could be a hundred different things. There's a certain vulnerability. In a similar sense, I remember once reading somewhere and it it resonated with me. You might notice this, that when people actually say thank you to someone for something, anecdotally, you could take take an observation of this. A lot of people will say, oh, no problem. No big deal. No worries. All good. How many people actually say, you're welcome? Until I read that, I didn't necessarily notice it. And there is a certain amount of vulnerability in saying, you're welcome. Simply, you are welcome. Because it's a connection. It's an acknowledgement. It's something I don't even know. I can't even really put my finger completely on it. But there's a certain amount of vulnerability to say thank you for a compliment and to say you're welcome when someone thanks you.
1: Oh, absolutely. And it's also an acknowledgement that you need to quiet your own negative voices and just accept that. To our, to go back to that old SNL sketch, right? Doug garnet, people like you. <laughs> it's hard to accept that. You have to turn off your demons. You have to turn off your ego for a second. And you're right. It is extremely vulnerable to just sit there and be like, thank you. Someone likes me. I'm worth it.
0: Very true. And I'm glad you said something about projects that have a message that have meaning. I have yet to see it, unfortunately, but I've seen you know clips of it and heard some of the music. Dear Evan Hansen really resonated with me, especially because I deal with a lot of anxiety. And so certainly it hits on that. So I really appreciate those types of projects when you can combine the arts with something that has a lot of meaning.
1: Yeah, I I hope you do get to see Dear Evan Hansen. The cast album is wonderful, but there's a lot of story that you miss. And so you'll miss a lot of the character development. It was the same for me with Dear Evan Hansen. I have a fair amount of anxiety, uh, to put it lightly. And so it resonated with me as well. And I think, listen, there's nothing wrong with shows that are more surface level. I think we need those too. We need joy, better joy in our lives. But I'm particularly drawn to shows like Dear Evan Hansen that have that extra level of Philosophical weight.
0: Yeah, I guess this is more surface level. (laughs) Have you ever bumped into like when you're part of a performance or a team and you have to deal with being starstruck?
1: When I was a kid, I worked with Ben Vereen and Terrence Mann, big names in the industry, Tony Randall. But as a kid, I don't think you're aware enough to be starstruck. So I think I dodged that bullet pretty well. <laughs> as an adult, Green Day, Kayla, Everybody from the, the, the three guys came to see American Idiot when we were doing it. That's probably the closest that I've come to being starstruck. Playing Green Day for Green Day is
0: the most stressed out I think I've ever been. I can imagine. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I would say that's the closest I've been to that feeling. But I also haven't worked with a ton of celebrities. I worked with Betty Buckley on a quick reading that for three hours. But I don't necessarily know that as an adult, I've been afforded the opportunity to be that starstruck.
0: And in a way, maybe being part of the world, it's a little demystified in that you're in it.
1: A little bit. And even if you do feel those emotions, it is easier to turn them off or at least add the perspective of this person's me. They're just more things. We're doing the same thing. They're just more things and possibly better at it, but more things.
0: We could talk for hours. I have a hundred more questions and. This was really meaningful i think i'll throw out this question but we're not going to answer it unfortunately maybe to leave people hanging is that as a mental health professional i'm really curious as to the flip side of everything if you want to call it i don't know the real challenges the mental health challenges maybe the substance abuse challenges like you mentioned demons just a minute or two ago of unfortunately how you know people struggle in the industry Maybe you can give like a 60 second sort of, I'm really not trying to cast a, a negative light on the industry, but I also think that there's worth to being able to have a conversation about it in a minute or two is not going to do it justice, but I'm still curious just to give a, you know, a very brief thought on that part of the world.
1: This industry can really be harmful to your ego and and i don't mean in the like this the inflated sense of self worth ego specifically in superego. it can be really hard to be told no all the time or to feel like i'm not moving fast enough or i'm not moving quick enough or i'm going nowhere and why am i here i should just move back home and find something else to do because a lot of people in new york are transplants i have seen people turn to substances to either placate those voices or quiet them or just dive into the negativity full throttle and it can be scary to watch someone that you love go through that especially knowing what the root cause of that substance abuse is that it's more than just they got addicted to the substance it's the why they got addicted to the substance in the first place that can be hard to deal with. Fortunately, everyone that I know who's gone through it has been able to pull themselves out, either through looking in the mirror and and realizing one day what's happening before it's too late, or a support system of people who love them and and who can help them deal with, with what they're either pushing back or diving into. I think in some ways with how vulnerable this industry is and how vulnerable being a performing artist is, that danger exists in a much larger fashion. My grammar teachers would be all over me right now, but I think we are more susceptible to that. Also, we do have that reputation of partying and celebrations because we do also try to live life to the fullest. It, it all brings about an, an inherent danger that needs constant self-awareness. Because if you're not careful, it is easy to dive into the negativity and let it take over your life, but it doesn't have to, and it can be amazing and you can still love everything that you're doing. It just takes work.
0: Thank you for that. And I hate that we're ending on this, but it's, I think it's really important to, to have that. And again, we can talk about that part even for, for a long time in itself. I really appreciate you being on and I'm sure everyone listening to this appreciates again, you all can support us by liking and rating and all that. People want to hear more from you. People want to connect with you. People want to hear your work and see your projects and stuff like that. How can they reach you?
1: You can find me at www.evanjnewman.com. Real clever website, I know, but it's E-V-A-N-J-A-Y-N-E-W-M-A-N.com. I've got a Twitter profile. It's Evan J. Newman, and Instagram Evan J. Newman. Pretty easy to find on social media, not as active as I should be. But yeah, those are kind of places you can find me. I talked about Lyra today. You can find us at lyravonmusical.com. And if you want, check out highnotesshow.com because we're going to be starting a pilot program with some theaters for some virtual concerts. We're going to start small. We're going to see how it goes, but keep an eye on that because hopefully that becomes a, a bigger thing.
0: Awesome. He's made it pretty simple to contact him and I'm going to give all that information in the notes of the show. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you enjoyed. Have a wonderful day, everybody.